This show is part of the Head Stuff Podcast Network. Welcome, gather round the fireside and listen to a tale of Yon McCool, Coo Cullen, Deirdre of the Sorrows, Grow New Whale. From giants right down to fairies, of both the trooping and solitary, and close to us, sometimes scary. Anything goes by the fireside. Yeah. Fireside, the Puka Fireside, Merrow Fireside. Kings and queens fighting heroes, don't you run from the fun, there's no need to hide. Sit by the fireside. Mm-hmm. Fireside. Hello and welcome to Fireside, the Irish storytelling podcast. Each episode of Fireside, we take a story from folklore and mythology, retell it, have a chat about the tale itself and about the craft, culture and history of storytelling. My name is Kevin C. Olahan. I'm your host and your Fireside Bard. Welcome to episode 181 of Fireside. Today on the Irish storytelling podcast, we have our second story from the great saga of the Irish-Australian rebel and hero and possible villain, This is Ned Kelly on the run. But first, a very big welcome to any new and returning listeners. If this is your first episode, why don't you listen to our first episode on Ned Kelly, episode 179, Ned Kelly and the Bushranger, to see see, uh, a little context for this episode. Although the context is not necessary, as I give plenty of refreshers for everything. Uh, And if there's a returning listener, thank you so much for your continued support. Ways you can support the podcast, you can follow me over on Instagram at Fireside Bard. It's the best place to get in touch, say hello for business or personal inquiries, or just to raise your hand up and say, how are you getting on? Um, you can, of course, tell a friend, spread the good word of Fireside, spread the embers farm wide. You can, my personal favorite choice, you can buy my book, uh, Garden Sea, at headstuff.org in paperback form, or from a Kindle um, at amazon.co.uk or .com, wherever you are based in the world. Um, the paperback version can be shipped anywhere around the world. We have just had one sent off, um, sending one off to New Orleans today, which is very exciting. First pli- time it's been sent to Louisiana. I like ticking off every time there's a new state or a new country that the book is being sent to. It makes uh, makes me feel very very good inside and i hope you are all enjoying the book those who have bought it so much thank you so much for buying it and as always please do let me know if you have any thoughts on the book i love hearing from each and every one of you by the way if you're not on instagram you can email me at the at gmail.com for all the same sources and if you really want to support the podcast directly you can do so at headstuff plus at headstuffpodcast.com all of the links are in the description below. All of those are the hard sells over and done with. This, uh, to get down to this week's story, first of all, I'm recording this from... where right, We're in a place called Cessnock, um, very close to the city of Newcastle in New South Wales. We're literally in the last week of the tour of World of Musicals here in Australia. Um, it has been a long and wonderful, magical, very prosperous five months here in Australia. Um, as my, my listeners to the podcast will know, this tour has been over two years in the making, has been postponed once, cancelled once. We made it out here last year, got sent home. So be, to be on the other end of this tour now is 
is an incredible feeling after and feels very cathartic among everything else. And next week, return home to Ireland. But uh, literally a couple of days ago, um, we were back in Ned Kelly country. We were in the town of Beechworth um, and I was in a brewery, um, a Beechworth brewery that had Ned Kelly even in the logo. So I was back circling around this world, went into a bookshop, got another great book uh, called Ned Kelly's Last Stand. Um, I put that link in the description below as well. Um, and we had a great chat with the with the bookshop owner about him because, as I said in the previous episode, he's an incredibly divisive figure whenever you talk. It's almost awkward whenever you talk to contemporary Australians about him. Um, it depends usually like where where the particular heritage lies in being like an Irish Australian figure. Uh, some Australians have found like want to claim him entirely as Australian um, because like it's a one of the many misconceptions about him is that he was born in Ireland, but he was very much born in Australia to two Irish parents who had both emigrated there. But I'm finding, yeah, I'm finding it very interesting every time I flag up. So, as always, if any Australians listen to this podcast, or even Irish in Australia, please do let me know your thoughts on all of this, because this was uh, one of my favourites. This is another one of my favourites uh, to have written, at least, so I hope it's uh, a great one to record as well and to listen to. Um, this this is the real, this is the real, like, exciting and complex and fun part of Ned Kelly's life. This is where he goes from just, like, another bush ranger another larrikin into this iconic figure for better or for worse so we'll chat more about it afterwards of course but this is ned kelly on the run on fireside ned kelly on the run and that fitzpatrick will be the cause of greater slaughter to the union jack more than St. Patrick was to the snakes and toads in Ireland. Ned Kelly was never a drunk. He drank, but he never got drunk. He had seen what the drink had done to his father, Red Kelly, who drank himself to death when Ned had been twelve. But following his release from three years of hard labour, a now iconically bearded 19-year-old Ned Kelly returned from prison and was determined to lead an honest life. He found new work as a logger and at a sawmill, but him and his family continued to be haunted by the sins of their criminal past and they faced constant harassment from the Victoria Police Force. One night, Ned Kelly was invited by a friend of his for a drink. It was a fellow Aussie-born Irishman named Alexander Fitzpatrick, who was about Ned's age and had recently joined up with the Victoria Police. The two friends sat and toasted to each other's health. Slauncher, they both said. The next thing Ned Kelly knew, it was the next day, and he awoke with the worst hangover of his life, and found to his even greater surprise that he was in a prison cell. Constable Fitzpatrick had arrested Ned the previous night for public drunkenness and disorderly behaviour. Ned had been drugged. His drink spiked. He was sure of it. He had many vices, he knew that, but drink wasn't one of them. And he was no lightweight either. When Fitzpatrick attempted to put Ned in irons, Ned resisted and punched the constable in the jaw and made a break for it. It took more than four police and several local civilians to take Ned down. And when he was finally tripped up, 
An officer named Thomas Lonigan grabbed Ned between his legs to finally incapacitate him. This is surely where Ned Kelly's resentment of the police began to consume him. He said later, Oh, the Queen must surely be proud of such heroic men as the police and Irish soldiers as it takes eight or eleven of the biggest mud crushers in Melbourne to take one poor little half-starved larrikin to a watch house. Ned was taken to jail, and at his court date, Ned pleaded guilty to all charges. But this time, he could easily pay the fine, and he went home. Ned said, Fitzpatrick is the only one I hit out of the five in Banala. This shows my feelings towards him, as he said we were good friends and even swore it. But he was the biggest enemy I had in the country, with the exception of Lanigan. This would not be the last encounter between Ned Kelly and Alex Fitzpatrick. In fact, their next meeting would set Ned Kelly on the course that would lead to his legend. How was it that a poor ex-convict farmer like Ned Kelly could afford the fine of police assault? Well, after coming out of prison, Ned found his mother Ellen was engaged to an American named George King. George encouraged Ned that they should set up a sophisticated and elaborate horse theft operation, where stolen horses would be brought out of town to a ranch where their brands would be changed and then the horses would be sold legitimately, always having a legal bill of sale, making it impossible for the police to prove that they were stolen. This operation became an incredible success, with Kelly later claiming that 280 horses were stolen. The police suspected Ned was responsible, but they couldn't prove it. The money from this operation led Kelly and his comrades to adopt a more flash and stylish form of dress to suit their new outlaw or bush larrikin way of life. They were dubbed the Greta Mob, named after the town Kelly's family now lived in. But when 11 horses of a man named James Whitty were finally connected to Kelly, specifically to Ned's younger brother Dan, a warrant went out for his arrest in connection with this witty larceny. Their stepfather, George King, fled the state, never to be seen again, leaving his new wife, Ellen Kelly, alone and pregnant. Ned Kelly himself was reportedly across the border in New South Wales, shearing sheep when the warrant for the arrest of Dan Kelly arrived on the desk of the relief officer of the Garita Watch House, Constable Alexander Fitzpatrick. The man who had arrested Ned for public drunkenness, who had felt the fury of Ned's fist and now had a vendetta of his own. So Fitzpatrick rode for Eleven Mile Creek outside of Greta, where the Kellys lived. He had heard that Ned himself was not at home, which would have made Fitzpatrick feel it was safe to arrest Dan. Nevertheless, on the way to Eleven Mile, Alex stopped at an inn and had a brandy and lemon. When he arrived at the Kelly house, all hell broke loose. But what exactly happened will never be known, because there are two very different sides to the story. Fitzpatrick said he arrived and Dan Kelly resisted arrest. Dan wrestled Fitzpatrick to the ground while the mother, Ellen, beat the constable with a shovel. Ned then arrived home and began firing at Fitzpatrick, who caught a bullet in the wrist before being warned that if he told anyone of the truth of what had happened there, his life would not be worth living. 
The Kellys, on the other hand, claim that Fitzpatrick arrived at the house drunk. When Ellen Kelly asked for his warrant for Dan's arrest, Fitzpatrick said he had left it at the station. Ellen said that he could not arrest her son and the constable drew his pistol on the old woman. You wouldn't pull that pistol on me if Ned was here, said Ellen. Forcing his way inside the house, Fitzpatrick began to harass the 14-year-old Kate Kelly, Ned's sister. At this, Dan rushed to his sister's aid and knocked the constable down. Ned then appeared and claimed he did not realise who Fitzpatrick was before he fired. After the bullet clipped his wrist, Ned convinced Fitzpatrick to let him dig the bullet out, while Ellen Kelly bandaged the wound. Ned made his apologies for the misunderstanding and hoped Fitzpatrick would not report what had happened. The Kellys' version of the story was corroborated by neighbours and all the household. Not all the facts aligned. Ned would later claim he had not been there at all. The truth probably lies somewhere in between all versions. But regardless, it was of course Fitzpatrick's versions of events that the police believed. Ned and Dan went on the run, leaving Ellen Kelly and the two neighbouring witnesses to be arrested. Fitzpatrick claimed the neighbours had been involved in this attempted murder, and they were sentenced by Judge Redmond Barry to six years of hard labour. Ellen Kelly, despite having just given birth to her child by the new husband who had abandoned her, was sentenced to three years in prison of hard labour. Fitzpatrick said, their whole attitude to the police was one of intense hostility. It was only natural that they should try and blame me for causing the trouble that led to the gang defying the law. By all accounts, Fitzpatrick was a terrible police officer. He had been a constable for less than a year and already had a reputation as a lecherous alcoholic. He would in a short few years be dismissed from the police force and eventually die of liver failure. So many question why such a dangerously unqualified officer was stationed in the dangerous area of Greta. It had been thought that it was all just a ploy to draw the Kellys out and finally outlaw them, and that the drunken Fitzpatrick was just a goat they were happy to sacrifice. They were hoping for assault and got attempted murder. But we needn't worry about those logistics. Ned Kelly remains such a divisive figure in Australia, with as many defenders as detractors, that even those with no love or sympathy for Ned agree that the imprisonment of an older woman who had just given birth was an incredibly harsh judgment. When Ned and Dan heard of their mother's fate, their frustration and resentment for the Victoria Police turned all-out blind hatred. They offered to turn themselves in in exchange for their mother's release, which was denied. So Ned decided that if the world was only going to see him as a criminal, he would get bloody vengeance. The brothers were joined by two friends from the Greta mob, and Ned Kelly, Dan Kelly, Steve Hart, and Joe Byrne became the Kelly Gang. The Kelly Gang went into hiding at Bullock Creek in the Wombat Ranges and kept themselves going by making whiskey and sieving for gold. Meanwhile, all around Victoria, sympathy and support for the Kelly Gang grew among the public, especially among the poor and Irish of the community who also felt ignored or abused by the police. Ned later wrote, I came back to Victoria, knew I would get no justice if I gave myself up. 
I inquired after my brother Dan and found him digging on Bullock Creek. Heard how the police used to be blowing that they would not ask me to stand. They would shoot me first and then cry surrender. And how they used to rush into the house, upset all the milk dishes, break tins of eggs, empty the flour out of the bags onto the ground and even the meat out of the cask and destroy all the provisions and shove the girls in front of them into the rooms like dogs so as if anyone was there they would shoot the girls first. But they knew well I was not there. Or I would have scattered their blood and brains like rain. I would manure the eleven mile with their bloated carcasses. And yet, remember, there is not one drop of murderous blood in my veins. But it seems there was at least one drop of murderous blood in Ned's veins. He became convinced that any police searching for the Kelly gang would shoot them on sight. And the fateful squadron consisted of Sergeant Michael Kennedy and Constables Thomas McIntyre, Michael Scanlon and Thomas Lonigan. The same Lonigan who had literally grabbed Ned by the balls in Greta, whom Ned had proclaimed his greatest enemy, even more than Fitzpatrick. The four policemen were in pursuit of the Kelly gang and camped at an abandoned mine at Stringy Bark Creek not realising that they were only a mile and a half from their targets. Ned had been tracking them, and the next day, while Scanlon and Kennedy were out scouting, the Kelly gang approached the two remaining constables and told them to surrender. McIntyre was unarmed and raised his hands, but Lonigan reached for a pistol, and Ned shot him three times, once through the eye. Kennedy and Scanlon soon returned, and the Kelly gang hid in wait. Kennedy dismounted and the gang revealed themselves. Scanlon was shot while attempting to unsling his rifle. Kennedy hid behind a tree and began returning fire. In the chaos, McIntyre managed to get on his own horse and escape. Kennedy retreated into the bush, exchanging gunshots with Ned and Dan. When the sergeant had run out of bullets, he attempted to surrender. At close range, Ned Kelly blasted him through the chest with a shotgun. McIntyre's report of the shootout at Stringy Bark Creek made the Kelly gang the most infamous in all of Australia. Under the Felons Apprehensions Act, the gang were outlawed. Any civilian was encouraged to shoot the gang on sight. It became a crime to be a sympathiser of the Kelly gang, which only ensured their support grew and grew. The group of Ned and Dan, Joe Byrne and Steve Hart staged multiple successful robberies of banks and squatters, most famously at Euroa and Geraldery. It was at the latter, then dictating to his best friend Joe Byrne, that Ned wrote his manifesto, his defence for his actions, the justification of his perceived retribution. He spoke of injustices to his people, his family and the poor. This 56-page pamphlet was intended to be published and circulated and finished with a warning that would lead supporters to call him the Outback Robin Hood. I give fair warning to all those who has reason to fear me to sell out and give £10 out of every hundred towards the Widow and Orphan Fund and do not attempt to reside in Victoria, but as short a time as possible after reading this notice... Neglect this and abide by the consequences, which shall be worse than the rust in the wheat in Victoria or the drouth of a dry season to the grasshoppers in New South Wales. I do not wish to give the order full force without giving timely warning. 
but I am a widow's son, outlawed, and my orders must be obeyed. To be continued. This is how it's always been. Double Love is a podcast in which we explore the strange and terrifying world of Sweet Valley High, book by book. Join me, Anna Carey. And me, Karen Moynihan. As we revisit one of the maddest series of books ever written or ghostwritten. If you ever read about Elizabeth and Jessica, the perfect blonde Wakefield twins, then you might enjoy listening to us absolutely tearing them to shreds. Affectionately, of course. Of course. And even if you didn't, there's still plenty of drama, kidnapping, stolen boyfriends and school dances to entertain you. Find us on the Headstuff Podcast Network and wherever you get your podcasts. And there we have the tale of Ned Kelly on the run on Fireside. And I hope you all enjoyed it. Yes, we have two. We have here two out of the three most famous stories of Ned Kelly. The, we had the Fitzpatrick incident, the Stringy Bark shootout, and the third and final, which will be next week's episode, which is the the shootout at Glen Rowan. Um, but these are the two. These are the two messiest, uh, most complex, most divisive subjects as well, because. When, when it all comes down to it, um, the Fitzpatrick one particularly is is complicated because of the notoriety of everyone involved, Fitzpatrick included. He had a very, very proven, awful track record, which would lead to him to be fired a sh- short few years later, I think even before Ned, Ned himself was taken down. Um, but he had his version of events, and the Kellys naturally had their very different version of events. Some say that the the Kelly's neighbours corroborated the Kelly's version of events because they were so afraid of the Kelly gang. Um, but the only thing of the Fitzpatrick incidents that is agreed upon is the sentencing of an elderly, an elder, an older woman who had just given birth to her ninth child, I think it was eighth or ninth child, um, to be sentenced to three years of hard labour was an incredibly harsh one, even by the standards of Victorian era, Victoria. But then we get this, uh, this, these wheels set in motion where you can see where the heroic legacy of Ned Kelly came from to a certain group of people because he went on the run and they were given this justification of fighting for their unfairly imprisoned mother that it didn't matter about the the horse theft operation or anything that he had done or any of the rest of the family had done they suddenly had this moral cause and this very this to their themselves this very justifiable reason to go out on this rampage to become these outback robin hoods and rob from the rich and give to the poor and all of that but then we get the very messy and complicated stringy bark police murders because this is another one that, like, no one else was there except for those that survived. McIntyre, um, one of the four police, who the one who escaped, um, he himself was not present for the death of his later two, latter two comrades. Um, he could only prove the death or by his own character witness of uh, Constable Lonigan, who incredibly, like, 
as I frequently say whenever we dabble with something like history, um, I am not a historian. I'm a storyteller at the very most. Um, and I'm trying to tell a very clear version of complicated events, but also want to try and give a sense of balance um, to not be swayed one way or the other to try and present as many facts without making it too complicated a story. And I think, I feel I've achieved that in this um, through no small part for a fact I'll, I'll issue after this. But from a storytelling point of view, you couldn't ask for better from the fact that one of these four police officers at Stringy Park, at Stringy Bark was Constable Lonigan, who was the one who literally grabbed Ned by his bollocks um, in the fight with Fitzpatrick when he was being arrested, a man who he had said was his sworn enemy. So it has a narrative justification there. Very interestingly about the Stringy Bark murders, um, there's a documentary on Amazon Prime um, about Ned Kelly. It's it's okay. Um, it's, wor- it's worth a watch because uh, it has a lot of interviews with his descendants, but not just Kelly descendants, but descendants of the four police officers who died, um, or the three who died at Stringy Bark, and the descendants of McIntyre who survived. And I'm not sure if it's every year or if it's just on certain anniversaries, but descendants of Lonigan, Scanlon, McIntyre, and <laughs> Kennedy, and the descendants of Ned Kelly, uh, all meet at Stringy Bark, and both sides kind of shake hands and commemorate that it was a complicated issue and both have their different sides of the story and both believe different versions but I love that they come to acknowledge that it was just an awful situation for everyone involved and could have been avoided in many cases um that that more than anything made this uh made that documentary worth watching I'll put a put a link to it in the description below as well um but the reason why I think I like this this episode particularly um and enjoyed writing it so much, not just because we get two out of the three of these main, very, very interesting accounts in Ned Kelly's life, is the Geraldry letter. All of these quotes, for the most part, that come from Ned um, are from this 56-page document called the Geraldry letter, which, again, I'll put in the link in the description below. Um, in all the research I've done on Ned Kelly, it's been my favorite thing to read because it's in his own words, or rather it's in the words of Joe Byrne, as Joe Byrne was the one who could write but uh, Ned was to have dictated it for him. It's about 8,000 uh, 8, words long. Don't let 56 pages put you off because it's handwritten, so the, the letters are quite large. Um, but I'll put a link to a transcript of it. I think the actual letter itself is in the old Melbourne library. Um, but it was just great because regardless of if you believe... Kelly's version of events or anyone else's versions of events, it's nonetheless incredibly fascinating to read something that was in his own words. You don't need to believe he was right or wrong to find it interesting and engaging to actually hear this person's this this person's real voice, you know, or a real written voice. Um, and for, like, an Aussie-born Irishman, for him to say, like, you know, uh, that Fitzpatrick would be more of a danger to the Union Jack than St. Patrick was to the snakes and toads of Ireland. That, like, it's like he's cementing his own legend. And this incredibly bloodthirsty rhetoric that comes through, it kind of starts very level-handed and then leads so much that when he talks about... um, 
scattering their blood and brains like rain, this poetry that comes through that may have been entirely Kelly or may have been Joe Byrne's influence as well, as Joe was the one who was the literary one being able to write at all. Um, that is why Joe Byrne, in no small part, is played by Orlando Bloom in the Heath Ledger and Ed Kelly movie. Um, and then to backtrack and say, like, I'll I'll scatter their blood and brains, but I'm not a murderous man. There's not a murderous blood in my vein, not, not a drop of murderous blood in my veins. So this this conflict and this contradiction and this anger that comes through so clearly in this manifesto as it was meant to be, in the end, only two copies of this Geraldry letter, as it would later be called, not within Kelly's lifetime, were ever printed. Um, and both of them are written out and both of them still exist, which is amazing. Um, but his intention was that this would be published and spread all around Victoria and that this would gain them even more public support. And he justifies everything. He justifies the Stringy Bark murders. He justifies the Fitzpatrick incident. It contradicts other versions of the story. Um, one of the th quotes I couldn't get into it, um, but I always think about is Ned would later say that Fitzpatrick never harassed his sister, Kate, which in all other versions of the story is said, except for Fitzpatrick's, of course, as Ned said, oh, no, he, he never went near my sister. That's nonsense, because any man who went near one of my sisters, Victoria, wouldn't hold him, uh, which is a quote that just has stayed within my mind. And then, of course, we have this final, final warning that... Uh, because, like, there's less, in terms of the outback Robin Hood image, there's less kind of robbing from the rich and giving to the poor. There's a lot of robbing from the rich, for sure, and them being poor themselves. But there's less giving to the poor themselves. But this quote here seems to be where that part and that aspect of the legend comes from, that he encourages all of these wealthy squatters or anyone who perceives him as an enemy to donate £10 out of every 100 which would have been a tremendous, tremendous amount of money to the Widow and Orphan Fund and to just leave Victoria, attempted to scare everyone out of the state. And clearly there was an immense, immense fear of this one man, um, hence Fitzpatrick needing this Dutch courage before going to arrest Dan and only going when it was thought that Ned wasn't there at all. Um, I think it was his biographer, Ian Jones, that said, as I might have said last week, that the more you read and more discover about Ned Kelly, the more interesting and more complex the story gets. And I absolutely agree with that. And one of the many reasons why I'm glad I didn't just do one episode on it and that I've dedicated three episodes from it. And I hope you all agree as well. So please do let me know your thoughts. Um, that's two out of three. Next week, we'll have another story of the Fianna. Actually, a story of the Fianna centering on Conan Whale McMorna. Next week we have Conan Whale's wedding crash, which is a really fun and funny story uh, that I really look forward to sharing before we get back to Nettie Kelly's last stand the week after next, um, which I think I'll hopefully get both of those recorded before because uh, the next time I record otherwise um could be when i'm already back in ireland but it would be nice to wrap up the ned kelly saga while i'm still in ned kelly country um and then when i get back to ireland we'll see what'll become of the next few months of fireside while we lead up to our four year anniversary so as always um follow me on instagram email me at the at gmail.com uh, buy my book garden sea my poetry book and um, the links are all in the description below um 
support the podcast at headstuffpodcast.com by joining Headstuff Plus for as little as five euro a month, or you can pay more if you want. Um, I'll see you all. You'll hear me all next time. Remember, wherever you are and wherever you go, you can always join me by the fireside. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com.